In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, welcome to tonight. As, uh, as you guys know, we're starting a new uh, series for tonight. So Father Michael and Dr. Mir were uh, giving the last series, the last six weeks, I believe, and it was about difficult passages in the Bible. All of those talks have been uploaded, so you're, um, you can access them on SoundCloud, and if you need the link, I'm happy to pass them on to you. Um, but tonight we're starting a new um, series, which is Introduction to Apologetics. So you're stuck with me for a little while, and I, and I apologize, but uh, we're hoping to also get another speaker on board if we can uh, tee it up. So um, let's get straight into it. Introduction to Apologetics. What is apologetics? Uh, as I said before, um, a couple of weeks ago, apologetics isn't the art of apologizing, although if it was the art of, of apologizing, I'd be the perfect person to speak because I've been married for 10 years. I know exactly how to apologize. But um, apologetics is not that at all. Um, if you look on your handout, apologetics is best described in um, the following verse, which is 1 Peter 3.15, in which we are instructed to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. And you'll notice that in that verse, the word defense, um, that's, that, that word defense actually is the translation of the Greek word apologia. And apologia, um, as you see, means defense. And it, it, in, it, in, the, in the terms of def offering a defense, as you would, uh, for example, in the court of law, um, and that's obviously where the word apologetics comes from. So apologetics stems from the word apologia. Um, so when we look at Christ Christian apologetics, it basically involves making a case for um, the truth of the Christian faith or the truth of the gospel. So over the next five weeks, we'll sort of five weeks or six weeks or so, we'll cover um, what apologetics is. We'll look at some of the arguments that we can uh, put forward in terms of defending the Christian faith and making a case for God and making a case for Christ and making a case for our beliefs. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully five, five or six weeks or so, we'll be looking at that. But also, why did we choose to um, cover this series at this time of the year? Um, as you know, we're actually in the Apostles' fast at the moment. Um, and so we didn't just choose this series to, you know, sort of haphazardly. The reason we chose this series is because it closely relates to the Apostles. The Apostles were the very first apologists, right? So when we look at um, the Pentecost, for example, on the day of the Pentecost, St. Peter went out and he preached. Do you know his famous sermon that he gave? So he preached his famous sermon in front of thousands of particularly Jewish um, members. And um, if you look at that sermon, it's actually, um, it's in the form of an, an apologetic. So um, he's making a defense for who Christ is. He's making a defense by talking about the miracles that Christ um, performed. He's making a case by talking about the prophecies that were fulfilled through Christ. And then he talks about Christ's resurrection and, and um, his death and his resurrection. So he uses a lot of prophecies from, from, from Scripture. So he quotes a lot of biblical passages. And the reason he does so is because he's talking to people who are familiar with the Bible, uh, with, the, with the Scriptures, the Old Testament. He's talking to Jewish, um, uh, a Jewish uh, audience. Um, but if we look elsewhere in the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter, I want to say 14, um, there is 
there is St. Paul and Barnabas. And they're found, again, making a defense for, for God, for the existence of God, to non-Jewish um, believers, so Gentiles. And what do they do? St. Paul doesn't quote the scriptures at all. He looks at nature, he talks about nature, he talks about the world, and he tries to make a case for God by looking at the environment around him. So you can see that there's a lot of sort of wisdom behind how the apostles um, spoke and how the apostles preached and how they connected with their audience. And that's partly what apologetics is, is all about. I just want to make a disclaimer before we, before we get started. Um, a lot of the resources that I'll use tonight, they're not orthodox in nature. And the reason is because there's not many orthodox resources out there in, in regards to apologetics. But having said that, a lot of the, the resources that we do find, they're Christian, they're, they're great resources, and we can use the sermon, obviously, to, to try and um, use the information that we need. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is that we're talking, when it, when it comes to talking about apologetics, we live in a, in a very secular society. So um, what does secular mean? It means that the world in which we live, or the society in which we live, does not, um, does not, welcome, um, does not welcome anything that's divine, does not welcome anything that's um, supernatural. So there's no space for God in this world. This is the secular world. God, because he's uh, outside of the realms of this world, for the, for the Western secularist or the Western person who lives in this society, God is not even um, a thought, right? So um, the reason I say that is because a lot of the resources that I said we'll, we'll, we'll use sort of for this series is, is not orthodox, but they're resources that talk about the bigger picture. So as a, as a, if I'm talking to a person who's a non-believer, who's an atheist, and... Um, you know, to try and make a defense for who God is or try and make a defense for who Christ is, I'm not going to go and talk to that person about denominational matters. So I'm not going to talk to the person about, you know, immersion, uh, baptism by immersion, if that person doesn't actually believe in God altogether. The last thing he cares about is immersion, right? So um, what I'm trying to say is we're looking at a bigger picture to provide um, a case for who God is. Okay? Uh, on your handouts, you'll see that uh, I've just put a couple of dot points um, of what we'll be talking about tonight. So why do we need apologetics? Why do we need apologetics? The first thing that I wanted to talk about is that we are basically instructed to do so. That verse that we quoted earlier, 1 Peter 3.15, instructs us to be ready to give an account. Um, and as we said, we live in a world that's predominantly secular. Um, and that means that we as Christians need to be ready, need to be able to shine the light of Christ into this dark world, right? If, if um, the only way someone who lives in this world will meet God, will meet Christ, is through someone who lives with Christ within them, right? And that's, that's our role. Um, now, here's where it gets a little bit sort of um, aggressive. 
Secularists, which so basically atheists of, uh, of the modern day, are bent on eliminating religion from our society. The, the atheists of the new, um, uh, sorry, the atheists of the 21st century, they're called the new atheists. They're represented by people uh, like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, um, Christopher Hitchens. Do, do any of these names ring a bell to anybody? They're very, they're very sort of prominent atheists. They've written countless books, um, and they're very sort of aggressive in their, um, in their tone and in the way they address, particularly the Christian faith. Okay, so they're, they're always on the attack when it comes to discussing the Christian faith. Basically, they see the Christian faith as um, part of all the other religions, and they look at religion. Uh, in a negative sense, because they classify religion as, uh, you know, as enforced ideas, and um, they see particular bad cases when it comes to, to, you know, they look at bad cases and they can classify all of religion as evil, and that's sort of the agenda that they push. So thinking about that, why do we need apologetics? These are just some of the things that I sort of um, um, penned down, but you know, if you've got more ideas, please share them. The first is to strengthen our own faith, right? When we talk about apologetics, if, if, um, if we study the scripture and if we study our faith well enough to be able to defend it, um, what are we doing? We're strengthening our own faith as a result. The other thing is, is we're also defending our faith against um, incorrect teachings, right? We're also presenting the truth of the gospel and correcting the wrong image of the Christian worldview. I, um, we're looking for, this is a, uh, look, I just want to share this with you. We're looking for a school for my uh, four-year-old son who's supposed to start school next year. And so some of the schools that we're looking at, some of them happen to be Catholic. And so I was mentioning this to a colleague at work and I, they asked me sort of what schools you're looking for and stuff. And I said, oh, there's one particular Catholic school that, that looks um, quite nice and you know, uh, we're looking to, to see if we can get uh, our boy in there, and she sort of turned to me, the second she heard Catholic, she sort of turned to me and she gave me that look, she didn't say anything, anything sort of uh, rude or, or anything like that, but she gave me that look, which is basically to say, why? Why would you do something like that? And then she said, uh, out loud, she basically said, don't you have any um, public schools in the area? And I said, yeah, but we'd rather go take him to, um, to a Catholic school or, or sort of um, a couple of other schools. And she sort of nodded and walked away slowly and, <laughs> and, and left the conversation. In her mind, when she heard the word Catholic, she assumed, or she, what, what did that bring to her mind? Not a positive thing, because of all the, all the, all the bad rap that, Catholic, um, that the Catholic Church has been getting lately. Um, she walked away with a negative view of what the Catholic Church is like. So for us, apologetics can help correct that negative view of the Christian faith. The fourth point, which I think is one of the most important points, is actually to empower the next generation of Christian um, of Christians in order to defend the faith. I look at my children, and I'm sure you, you'll look at sort of um, of your, you know, a, a lot of you guys are servants, a lot of you guys, are, uh, not a lot of you guys, but some of you guys are parents, and some of you guys will be parents, I'm sure. So uh, unless we start to sort of consider this seriously and take this seriously. I think we're actually um, doing a disservice to our youth, a disservice to our students, a disservice to our, 
our kids and so forth, if we don't train them to be able to defend their own faith, right? Um, does that make sense so far? Am I saying anything that's... Am I talking too fast, too slow, anything? All, all good? Okay, just stop me if I, uh, if I start to ramble. Okay, so the next point is how do we do apologetics? How, how do we do apologetics? Um, William Lane Craig, who's, um, who's actually a, a renowned apologist, modern-day apologist, he says this, which I really liked. He says, we can present a defense of the Christian faith without becoming defensive. And we can present arguments for Christianity without becoming argumentative. I really thought that was a beautiful way to say it. We can present a defense of the Christian faith without becoming defensive, and we can present arguments for Christianity without becoming argumentative. So in a nutshell, what he's saying is that we should be gentle and respectful in all of our approach to those who we encounter. Right? Um, another verse that backs that up is that good apologetics basically is or involves being able to speak the truth in love. Okay? So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, we're instructed to always speak the truth in love. The reason being is that we must remember that every single person that we encounter, every single person who is a non-believer, um, has a guard up when it comes to the faith, right? Um, that their guard may be up for a, you know, a number of reasons. We don't know what that reason is. And so it's best to approach them with sort of humility and with love because they may have been scarred from a particular dealing in a church. They may, have been, they may be scared to sort of... Uh, you know, venture out and, and investigate what the faith is all about. They may be just sceptical, and they may have heard, you know, incorrect um, teachings about the Christian faith and so forth. We don't know what's going on in their mind, so we just have to tread uh, gently and carefully. Okay, so with that in mind, um, we can dialogue with non-believers again um, and show them the hope that is in us, as that verse that we keep quoting um, tells us. And we can do so by answering four very fundamental questions. Uh, and these questions are in regards to our uh, Christian worldview. Now, before I keep going, um, what's a worldview? Do you, do you guys, if I say something that doesn't make sense, just pull me up on it because I, I, I might not be aware. But what's a worldview? So, so everybody has a worldview. Every single person that dwells on this earth has a worldview. It's, it's the way I view the world, and it's the way that I view myself in the world. Okay? So Hitler had a worldview. Mother Teresa had a worldview. You've got a worldview. I've got a worldview, and so forth. If you're religious, you've got a worldview. If you're non-religious, you've got a worldview. Whether you know it or not, you've got a worldview. <laughs> so um, for, for us as Christians, our worldview revolves around four basic um, concepts. Our origin, our meaning, our morality, and our destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And these are sort of the four prominent points that, as Christians, we should be proud to emphasize. We should be proud to emphasize what our origin is, what our meaning is, what our purpose is, what morality means to us, and what where our destiny lies. Okay? So the what I was hoping to do now is to quickly go through those four points and to try and sort of provide a contrast between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. And it's not to sort of point the finger and say, oh, look, you know, 
this is what we've got and, and others are, are missing out. But it's more to understand that, you know, this is what our faith in Christ provides and, um, and this is what others may not have. And our aim and our hope is to try and bridge that gap, to try and sort of show the world that, you know, there's a better way and that way is through Christ. Okay, so origin. Where did I come from? The secular explanation, um, and this is in your handouts, is that inexplicably the universe was born from a size smaller than an electron, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, and expanded to nearly its current size within a tiny fraction of a second. So that's how the universe began. And when it comes to talking about life, the secular person will tell us that life began from random interactions of chemicals and evolved through natural selection and mutating genes. So the very first form of life began um, through chemical interactions, uh, forming a simple uh, life form, and that life form evolved and evolved and evolved, and, and that's where we get the, all the species, including ourselves, today, through um, natural selection and uh, mutating genes. What is the Christian worldview? We know what the Christian worldview is. We just have to look to the very first chapter of Genesis, and we're basically told that um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and um, when it comes to our own creation, God created us in the image, in his image and in his likeness. We are created sort of um, we are, as the glory of God, and we've talked about this sort of um, a couple of months ago. So that's the contrast there. Meaning. So meaning is why am I here? For the secular view, life is about, is about what you make of it. Your brief existence is whatever you make it to be. There is a, a physics teacher and an author. His name is Alom Shaha. And he wrote a book called The Young Atheist's Handbook. Sorry, this is not in the notes. Um, and this is what he says. He says, yes, of course, I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose, but the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. And then he says, he continues to say that we should embrace that. That's what we should be embracing. Uh, of course, the Christian worldview is different to that. In the Christian worldview, we are made to live in community with each other, and we are made to live in community with God. Um, we are placed on this earth. This earth was prepared for us. We are placed in this earth to, to, um, to not just cultivate it, but to benefit from it and to, to, um, to learn from its wonder and, and its beauty. And we are also um, here to serve each other and to serve, to serve God. That's our purpose. Notice that when it comes to, um, when it comes to our meaning as Christians, it's, it's, um, it's very linked to God's love for us. It's all about God's love for us. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, we are told this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our meaning is found through the love that Christ bestows upon us. Okay, so moving on, morality. 
how do we understand what is right and what is wrong? And this is where it gets a little bit murky for the secular worldview. Okay, and you'll, you'll see what I mean just shortly. But for the secular worldview, morality is a process of genetics and deterministic chemicals operating within the brain and making our choices for us. And that morality is a process of, of, evolu uh, of evolution and determinism. I'm sorry. I'll explain what that means. Basically, um, what's, what, that's, what, what that's saying is that morality, our choices, what's right and what's wrong, is a process of genetics, so our genetic makeup, and it's also a process of our chemical makeup. So our genetic makeup and our chemical makeup. And then it continues to say, and it's also deterministic. What that means is that, so it's our genetics, it's our chemical makeup, but it's also our evolution through the ages, from generation to generation, we've come to, to evolve morally. Okay? So that's the secular worldview. We've, we've evolved morally, and then um, combine that with, my chemical, with the chemical reactions going on in my brain, as well as my genetics. And that's how I make my decisions, and that's how I base my choices on what's right and what's wrong. Can anybody see what's wrong with that? Before we get into that, can anybody Something see? Absolutely. Okay. So that's yeah. In a nutshell, what you but what Sharif basically said is that if something's wrong, what happens then? In other words, does that person have free will? Does that person whose moral choices are made based on um, their evolution and their chemical composition and their genetics, does that person have a free will? What do you guys think? It doesn't sound like it. Absolutely. And this is where it gets murky because Richard Dawkins, who I mentioned earlier, so he wrote a book called The God Delusion. He's, he's very famous for that book. He, um, he struggles with this concept. So he actually concedes that if you take this view, which is the atheistic view, um, then it's, it's, it's crazy to think that that person can have free will because it, it's just, it counteracts the whole idea. But then when he was questioned about it, he says that life would be intolerable um, if we believed that we don't have free will. So he goes around and he, he teaches that we don't really have free will, but he teaches that we do have free will so that um, he can feel, I don't know, he can feel better about himself. I'm not sure why he does that. <laughs> so do you get what I mean? There's a bit of conflict going on there. This is just with Richard Dawkins. Um, and this is in his own words. He says that this is an inconsistency that we have to live with. So that's the way he sort of um, makes sense of it all. Sam Harris, who's another atheist, a very prominent atheist, um, he actually wrote a whole book on free will. And um, the premise of that book is basically to emphasize that free will is an illusion. None of us really have free will because of the reasons that we mentioned. Um, interestingly, Dawkins, by the way, he, um, he, he was under fire in 2014. He actually tweeted, um, what did, I'm just trying to find this tweet. He actually claimed that it was immoral to allow unborn babies with Down syndrome to live. 
And so he posted on Twitter saying that um, the would-be parents um, who learn that their child has that condition, who, who has um, Down syndrome, they have an ethical responsibility to abort it and try again, to abort the baby and try again. And so he, he was um, under fire for saying that, and his response was, um, as to why he would say that, his response was, my own moral philosophy, which in turn is based on a desire to increase happiness and reduce suffering. So that's his, his, um, his moral outlook on, on the world. When it comes to our Christian, um, uh, Christian morality or how um, we understand morality, we know that morality is an, an intrinsic, we have an intrinsic moral law. What does that mean? It means that God created us with a conscience, with an ability to, to make decisions, um, you know, to decide what's right and wrong, and that is something that's inbuilt in us and inbuilt in everybody, right? In Isaiah um, chapter 51, verse 4, this is what we're told. We're told, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. Okay? So for us, morality is about how we relate to God and how um, and about the dignity that we provide and the value and the honour that we provide um, each other. Finally, destiny. What happens to, to me when I die? For the secular um, view, and this is a quote from the Atheist Australia blog, um, this is what we're told, uh, and I quote, when I die, I am dead and gone. My, my conscious life will end. My interactions with others will end and I will be simply gone. It's a little bit bleak. Um, the Christian worldview is quite the opposite. It's actually our death on this earth is actually the rebirth into the afterlife. Um, when we leave this earth, we believe that we are sojourners in this earth and the day that we depart from this earth is the day that we truly live, the, that we, the day that we truly unite with God and with other members of the body of Christ in heaven. Um, and it's, um, it's actually a day that we as Christians almost should be, should be looking for, um, looking towards. Um, in Revelations chapter 21, 21 uh, verse 3 to 5, we are told, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. So this is sort of the, this is what we look forward to when it comes to um, our view of destiny. That's, that's um, our resting place. That's where we dwell when we pass. What was the point of all this? I'm not just trying to, again, I'm not just trying to paint, paint a bleak picture of the secular view, but the idea is to try and understand how the, how the atheist views the world and how we view the world in an, in an attempt to sort of bridge that gap. Um, but what you can see from this is that the two views are totally opposite. The two views are, are, are complete odds with one another. And to complicate matters even more, the, um, the secular worldview supports diversity, 
which may seem like a good thing, and also relativism. Does that, does that make sense? Um, when I say relativism, basically all that means is that... Um, Truth is an open Exactly. What's true for me may not be necessarily what's true for you. Um, you know, that's my truth. You may not have to believe it, and, and that's fine. But can you see that there's a massive issue with that, with that understanding or with that view? What do you guys think? What's wrong with that view? The guy that I uh, get my kebab from <laughs> for years now, every time I go to him to get a kebab, I order the kebab, we start talking, and then he tells me that uh, he starts talking about you know, religion, and at the end he says, but you know, we worship the same God anyway, and then he goes to make my kebab. I never say anything because I want my kebab. <laughs> <laughs> but do we worship the same God? Is it possible that we worship the same God? Is my God the same as his God? Is there nothing? Like, why? I mean, if there is one, uh, one divine power, then there is one divine power. Okay, good. That's a good question. What do you guys think? I'm liking the dialogue. Because God believes in the Trinity, and if they don't believe in the Trinity, then we cannot, by definition, be worshiping. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to have to repeat this because I've been uh, told that the, the comments aren't being uh, um, recorded. So basically what Mary was saying is that we can't possibly be worshipping the same God because we believe in a Trinitarian God, um, whereas the Islamic view does not believe in a Trinitarian God. They believe in um, a different God altogether. And I'll just add to, to your comment, Mary, is that the attributes of our Trinitarian God is very has very different... Uh, sorry, our Trinitarian God has very different attributes to... Um, the other deity, right? Um, so much so that there are odds. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. So, so what I'm trying to get at is that truth cannot be relative, right? Yeah, it defeats the actual words, um, I want to say intrinsic meaning. If, if, there is, if, if truth can be in many places and there isn't one truth, then that word shouldn't, can't exist in the first place. Absolutely. The word truth. Yes, right. exactly. If, if, uh, if we know that this is the truth, anything that does not um, agree with that idea or that concept must not be true. Is that what you're trying to say? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a word in existence that is truth, like truth. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a concept that it can be unattainable. Sorry, what was that? There's a concept of truth that it can be unattainable. Unattainable? Yes. Okay, yeah. But... But when we're talking about, okay, so what, what I'm trying to say is that the concept of rel relativism is, um, it, can't be, it can't be true. If I hold the truth... If you hold truth to exist, then relativism cannot exist. So yeah. you either get one or the other. Exactly, okay. And that's, that's exactly what we're trying to say. So this, this, um, this is actually a push uh, in today's society in the sense that rather than impede my beliefs on others and rather than having somebody else impede their beliefs on me, the easy way out is to say, you know, your truth is yours and my truth is mine. But the fact of the matter is that doesn't make sense. That's illogical, right? That's, that's, that's the comment that I guess we're trying to make. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, divisive. In what way? creates a separation. So 
So it means that everyone has their own truth and everyone exists on their own and, mm-hmm. and we don't share anything. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, it's less complicated that way. Right? But how do, does that hold in real life? I'll give you an example. If I get pulled over here speeding and the police officer says, you know, I'm going to book you because you've been speeding, you're going at, you know, 80 in a 60 zone, and I say, and I say, listen, you know, that's fast for you, but for me, I can go a lot faster. That's not fast for me at all. Would that hold in the... In, uh, how would the police officer take that? <laughs> I'm not going to try that to find out. But how would the police officer take that? Yeah. yeah. What about the laws of nature? The laws of gravity aren't um, relative to me and to you. Actually, we'll talk about that again <laughs> in the next couple of weeks because it's a little bit more complicated than that. But do you get what I'm trying to say? When it comes to truth, the truth um, by its meaning means that everything else that does not coincide with the truth must not be true. I think that's also dangerous because if everyone has their own interpretation of what's true, then that gives rise to like a terrorist organization who think that what they're doing is right and mm. righteous. But yeah. it goes against human nature what they do. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, the reason I'm talking about this altogether is that um, we hold the gospel of Jesus Christ to be true. We look at Christ and we believe that Christ is the Son of God. Right? That's the truth for us. But you get people that ask, how, how, could it, how could there only be one way to God? Because in John chapter 14, verse 6, what does Christ say? Does anybody know that verse? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is the reason... I believe that the Christian worldview is under so much attack. It's because Christ is exclusive, right? You can't, and this is again going to, the, to my uh, kebab seller, <laughs> um, we don't share the same God. We have a different God. My God is Christ. His God isn't Christ, okay? And Dawkins actually, and this is the reason why Christianity is under so much attack, more than the other faiths, and, and this is quite... I mean, Richard Dawkins, for example, is quite outspoken about this. He says in all of his writings, he says, um, unless otherwise stated, I shall have Christianity mostly in mind. This is when he's writing his books and when he's uh, making his, um, his attacks. Okay. Uh, is science at war with God? What do you guys think? Is science at war with God? You okay? Sorry? It doesn't have to be. Yes? Good point. Going back to Richard Dawkins, I heard him on the radio a few days ago, and he actually, the interviewer asked him that specific question, and he said, um, "There is no place for God at all, because only science exists. Okay. And if you can prove to me that God exists the same way you can prove to me other scientific concepts exist, I'll believe in God." Okay. Interesting. Can I pass this um, magazine along? Just have a look at the front cover. Don't read it all because then we'll be here all night. <laughs> Just have a look at the front cover and tell me what you pick up from, uh, from that particular, particular cover. Um, personally, I don't think science is at war with God. And I'm sure you don't either. Because, in fact, 
sorry. If, um, why personally? No, uh, I'm saying I don't, and I'm sure you don't either. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say why. But I just, again, wanted to get your view on what you think of that magazine cover. Um, I don't think science is at war with God, but I think the new atheists, so the, the people like, uh, as John stated, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Chris Hitchens, and, and those particular people, uh, they're trying to push an agenda to make it seem as though science is at war with God. In fact, a lot of the scientists who um, leading up to this day and age, we've got a, you know, the prominent scientists of the past, many of them were Christian. Isaac Newton, for example, was Christian. In fact, Isaac Newton actually wrote a, um, a commentary on the book of Daniel and a commentary on the book of um, Revelations. So he's not just a Christian, he's, he's quite devout, right? Um, Boyle was a Christian. There are so many other Christians that have paved the way. And, it's fact, and in fact, it's their belief in God that made them want to look um, at their environment and to try and, it's almost a way to, to see God through his handiwork, through his art, and that is the world in which we live, right? So, so in reality, I don't, me, and I'm sure you don't either, and uh, the proof is there that science is not necessarily at war with God. Um, and this is what I found this, um, this quote by James Tua. He's a renowned um, nanoscientist. And this is what he has to say. He says, only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. That's what he says. Has anybody heard of a man called Anthony Flew? Anthony Flew? No? Okay, Anthony Flew died uh, about eight years, eight years ago. Um, he was a prominent atheist. And he was an atheist for uh, about five decades. Okay? In fact, a lot of the new atheists of today, um, a lot of their work is based on his... Um, writings and his teachings and so forth. A few years before his death, he came out and said, I can no longer hold um, the view that God does not exist. You know what converted him? What do you guys think? Science. Yeah. It wasn't a preacher. It wasn't a Christian who, who dialogued with him. It was none of that. It was his scientific research and his look at the universe and his look at particularly evolution and he could, not, he could not do away with God. And he, said, he came out and said that, caused a massive uproar, um, but he uh, could no longer hold that view. Now, the reason I was showing you that magazine, has everybody had a look at it? Yeah? The reason I was showing you that magazine, it's, it's, um, it's a magazine called Scientific America. It's, uh, it's actually... When you read that magazine, and, and, and they, it's quite a prominent magazine, you notice that it's not actually very scientific in nature. It's actually an atheist magazine masked as a, as a science, um, science magazine or a science journal or whatever else. In fact, a lot of the... Um, uh, it's, it's looked upon, upon quite poorly in the, in, the, in the scholarly sort of world. Okay? The articles in there are not very um, well written. They, they talk about things that haven't been proved. They make links between theories that don't necessarily agree and so forth. So the point that I'm trying to make is that this is, you know, for the, for the person who doesn't know any better would look at this and say, yep, this science magazine shows the latest findings, although this one's a bit older thing, but shows the latest findings. It proves, you know, 
Darwin's uh, theory, you know, still holds till today and so forth. And they talk about creationists and they say creationists latest tricks. And so they talk about people who believe in creation as, as though we're sort of meticulous and we're conniving and we're trying to sort of manipulate or um, introduce false teachings, right? It's talking about um, introducing creationism into uh, schools and things like that. And so they hold a very negative view of the, of the Christian worldview, but I wouldn't say that that's a scientific magazine altogether. So it's a long-winded way to make my point, but my point is that you know, science and, and, uh, and, the faith, and the faith in God actually complement each other rather than, um, rather than be at war. Okay? So I just wanted to conclude. I'm not going to take much longer because it's almost 9 o'clock. But basically what I wanted to say is that the argument for God, for the existence of God, is actually not an intellectual one. The, the new atheists will try and push that it is an intellectual argument. Anyone that believes in God is not intellectual enough or isn't informed enough or doesn't know science well and, and things like that. But hopefully what we'll look at in the, ne in the next sort of three, four weeks is that it's quite the contrary. Um, and it's not an actual intellectual argument, but it ends up being a moral argument. Um, there's a guy whose name is Josh McDowell who um, he wrote a book uh, titled More Than a Carpenter. So it's, it's, a, it's a book about Christ. Josh McDowell in his, in, in his earlier years was challenged by some of his university um, mates, friends, who were Christians, to go and study the, the, the Christian faith and the Gospels and to determine for himself whether the, um, the Gospels are um, authentic or not and whether the Christ, uh, whether, uh, Christ was who he claimed to be. So Josh McDowell spent, I think he says something like 700 hours traveling through the libraries of Europe and, and um, he's done you know, all this research and then at the end he came to the conclusion that without a doubt Christ um, is who he claimed to be and the Gospels are authentic and, and so forth. But do you think that convinced him to convert? Do you think all that research convinced, convinced him to, to um, convert? In, in the conclusion of his book, he actually says no. He says, I, I, had, I had intellectually, I had no doubt that what I was seeing was the truth, but my pride got in the way, and um, the implications of believing in Christ were too great for him at the time. And so he didn't believe straight away. But he, ended up believing. he ended up believing, but he's, uh, you'd think that someone who, who invested that much time and came away with the truth and the conclusion that he came away with, you'd think he'd convert instantly, but no. His pride and the implications of converting put him off. So what I'm trying to say is all the evidence in the world, you know, we may give all the evidence in the world for the existence of God, and we can provide case after case and so forth, but like we said, this is not an intellectual argument. At the end of the day, all the evidence in the world may not sway the person to, uh, to believe. And you know what? I think in... in uh, Sadly, I think that we are, personally, I find that uh, I'm the same. You know, it's easy for me to read the Gospels and to read the Bible and to pick the verses that are sort of easy, the ones that I can, I'm sort of already there and I can say, yep, that's a good verse, I'll highlight that one because, you know, I can, I can live up to that verse. 
But when it comes to the difficult passages in the, in the Bible, the, the passages that involve or that require that I give of myself and the passages that require that I sort of sacrifice and so forth, I'll easily gloss over them, right? And, uh, and that's sort of the same idea there. Um, that's pretty much... That's pretty much it. What I just wanted to conclude with was the um, C.S. Lewis quote, which is on your paper that says, um, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So um, so in a nutshell, what he's trying to say is our, our whether you believe in God or not, that this, that belief determines basically every aspect of your life. And so for us as Christians, it's crucial for us not only to believe in Christ, um, but if that's the truth, then we ought to we ought to pass that truth on to others. And not just that, we ought to live that truth. Uh, that's pretty much it from me. Are there any comments or, or uh, anything that anybody wants to share? Uh, next week, God willing, we'll be looking to the sky for proof of the existence of God, it, it, it'll actually, uh, it's actually really interesting, really fascinating, really weird, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite exciting, and we can look at that sort of next week, and, and we'll see how we go with time.